and welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is a podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have someone with a seriously impressive resume and even more impressive work ethic. She reveals what it's like to brainstorm with her business partner slash husband and how it felt to win the hardest competition on Food Network. She is a chef, a serial entrepreneur, the youngest female chef to cook at the James Beard House, and the winner of Tournament of Champions Season 1, it's Brooke Williamson. Brooke, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to chat with you today because I feel like at such a young age, you have already accomplished so much. Where does that go-getter attitude come from? I do what I love to do. I think that that's where that comes from. It, it comes naturally because on a daily basis, I'm doing what I love. I don't know. It doesn't feel like like I'm go-getting in a work mode. It feels like I'm just living my best life. <laughs> Well, I mean, you you discovered what you loved at a very young age. At 15, you were a teacher's assistant at the Epicurean Institute of Los Angeles. So at what age did you realize that you wanted to become a chef? Oh, probably like the age of six or seven. You know, I found myself watching Julia Child and Jacques Pepin on the TV on Saturday mornings instead of Saturday morning cartoons (laughs) and for literally hours. And then I would take what I had just watched and go experiment in the kitchen from an insanely young age. And, you know, I think that just developed over time. By the time I was in like middle school and high school, I already knew that I wanted to be a chef long term. Did your family cook a lot or were you kind of the one like taking charge in the kitchen? Yeah, no, my mom cooked. She cooked dinner for the family five nights a week. You know, it was the kind of a situation where we sat down for dinner at 6.30 p.m. every single night of the week. My parents had their date night on Saturday. They would go out to dinner. I'd stay home with a sitter. And then Sunday night, we'd all go out to dinner as a family. So that was kind of our our routine. And I would say that I, I grew up understanding the importance of sitting around a dinner table and sharing your lives at the end of the day and enjoying home-cooked food. At the ripe age of 19, you became the youngest sous chef at the iconic Michael's in Santa Monica. What kind of attitude did you have in the kitchen back then? I was a little girl. (laughs) I was like (laughs) a naive little girl who I kind of always did have that go-getter attitude. I feel like being successful at at a young age, you had to have that attitude like, enter a situation that you weren't sure that you could really handle and test yourself. And, you know, it was kind of succeed or be eaten, you know, like (laughs) literally I, you know, I was a small female in a kitchen full of men at that age. And I had to have this air of confidence to me that, that I could sort of handle anything regardless of whether or not I really believed that I could. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned it. How challenging was it to be a young female in a male dominated industry? You know, I'd like to say that it it had little to do with how I acted or or reacted on a daily basis. But I think that that's a naive thing to say. And And I actually feel like it was motivation to me to prove that I could handle myself in a professional manner and prove to my peers that I could do not only my job, but 
potentially their job better than they could. That was part of my motivation was proving to people that like I was more than what I maybe looked like. Yeah, I mean, you continued to do that. You you became the youngest female chef to cook at the James Beard House. What characteristics about yourself do you think kind of propelled you into these opportunities as your career continued to grow? You know, the, uh, I think a lot of the opportunities that you're talking about kind of came to me whether or not I was ready for them. I again, I would enter scenarios where I wasn't really sure that I could handle it, but walked into a kitchen telling people I could handle it. And mm-hmm. then it was just a matter of sort of proving to myself whether or not I could I could handle it. And because I I seemed to be able to carry my own weight in the kitchen and I could cook and I could handle myself and I could work, you know, endless numbers of hours without complaining. I think that opportunities started presenting themselves to me before I was maybe ready for them. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't know that I was ready to be an executive chef at the age of 22. Pretty certain I wasn't. (laughs) But, you know, I I pulled it off. I faked it until I made it. And being offered the opportunity to cook at the James Beard house at that age, I knew the sort of grandiosity of the situation. But looking back on that, I really didn't, right? In the moment, I really thought I did. I was getting LA Times reviews at the age of 21. So I think that everything kind of snowballed into my life, right? The the press that I got was partially probably because of my age and my gender. And I stuck out among a city full of older male chefs. And Mm. so people took note of me and what I was doing. And, you know, James Beard House caught wind of who I was and what I was doing and offered me an opportunity that obviously I wasn't going to turn down. And then I went and I did it and I did a good job. And then, you know, one thing led to another. And then 20 some odd years later, here I am. Here we are. It kind of just happened. Life just happened. It does. It does. Do you feel like cooking like comes very naturally to you? Or was it something that you really had to, you know, work at to, to get to the level that you are? You know, I at the age of 18, walked into a kitchen, Ken Frank's kitchen at the Argyle Hotel on Sunset in Hollywood, and said to him, I'll do anything that you need done. You don't need to pay me. I just want to be in this kitchen. And he put me in the pastry department because that was the only thing he had available. I made it very clear that that's not where I wanted to land long term, but it got my foot in the door and I worked really hard, but I also decided not to go the route of culinary school per Ken Frank's advice. I was applying to the CIA at the time in Hyde Park, New York, and you had to have a number of, of actual restaurant hours to before you attended. And so I, I, you know, I walked into the kitchen thinking I'll get my required hours and then I'll go to culinary school. And Ken said to me, you know, why not just work off of life experience and stay here? You have an entry level job in a good kitchen and we'll get you to where you want to be. So I, I took that advice. But because I didn't go to culinary school, I did definitely feel like I needed to spend the extra time educating myself in the fundamentals of cooking knife skills, how to make sauces, what the sauces were, how to debone a quail. I took my extra couple of hours a day and I read cookbooks and, you know, I spent that time educating myself. Fortunately, there was a sous chef at the Argyle Hotel who really took me under his wing and made a point of teaching me 
a new technique or method almost every day. Mm. So I had my own kind of personal culinary school, but I was very aware that I was in an industry and I was the gender that I was and I was the size that I was and I was the age that I was and I needed to have the knowledge and the wherewithal to back it up. And then at 24, you you opened your first restaurant. If you could go back, what advice would you give yourself back then? You know, everything that goes wrong when you're taking your first attempt at doing your own thing, everything that goes wrong at that age feels devastating. And I think at the time, I couldn't see the bigger picture of all, all the things that I was getting out of failure. Now I look at the trajectory of my career and I, I look at what I've done and I know in my head and in my heart that I wouldn't be where I am had I not gone through all of the messy failures and mistakes that I've made in my career. You know, at the age of 24, I, I might have done a little bit more investigating on on the lease and the neighbors and the neighborhood and, you know, all the business savvy experience that I have now. I, I definitely would have done things differently. But, you know, I say that understanding that if I had done things differently, I wouldn't be where I am. So I take all of my failures in stride now, knowing that they are examples of how to do things differently. What, what is the biggest lesson you learned from, from that first restaurant? I mean, never take a location that doesn't already have a liquor license. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, get to know your neighbors and, and how they might fight everything you want to do. My husband and I opened that restaurant not understanding California laws and all of the hoops that you have to jump through in order to get a business to where you want it to be. And now if I, if I were opening a restaurant that really needed alcohol involved, I would not go into a location that didn't <laughs> that already did. have that approved. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, fast forward to present times, you and your husband and business partner, Nick, have opened multiple restaurants and food concepts over the years. Uh, how did the two of you meet? I hired him <laughs> <laughs> when I was the chef at Zach's in Brentwood. I was 22. He was 22. Three, maybe he was still 22. I don't know. Um, I hired him as my sous chef. And we actually worked with each other for a solid year uh, before we even really got to know each other. We didn't look at each other romantically at first. We were definitely just colleagues and eventually spent so much time with each other and realized that we had a lot in common. And that's kind of where that where that started. We we actually didn't like each other very much for the first year that we worked with each other. Really? Um, yeah. Why? I mean, I think we were kind of competitive with each other. Mm -hmm. He kind of saw me as the young girl who was in a position that maybe she didn't deserve to be in, which is very valid. And he was like this cocky, annoying boy <laughs> who came in and thought he could do everything better than I could which sometimes was true. <laughs> not everything, not everything. You guys now are the owners of Plier Provisions, previous owners of Amuse Cafe, Hudson House, and the Triple. What what does a, a brainstorming session with the two of you typically look like? All of our restaurant concepts have happened very organically. We find a location, we look at the neighborhood, we think to ourselves, what can we bring to this neighborhood that doesn't exist already? Um, when it comes to you know, changing a menu or changing something within an existing restaurant, sometimes those conversations are a little bit more difficult. We don't always think 
the same way, which I think is part of the reason why we make great business partners. You know, I think we make up in each other what the other is lacking, either in that moment or in general. And we have very different trains of thought. Recently, I've kind of tended to take control over the menu a little bit more. And Nick is the guy that can kind of handle the staff issues and, you know, leave the creativity to me a little bit. So we make a great partnership. What is your process for creating a cohesive menu? Well, currently, we we only have five provisions open, which is kind of a godsend right now. (laughs) When it comes to like staffing and only having to worry about one location, I'm very... I'm very grateful right now that I only have to think about one location, but but it's um, four it's four concepts. Right? It's four concepts, so it does feel like it's more than one location. It's four different, several different menus. If you look at brunch and the cafe and the whiskey bar and the seafood restaurant, it's all the ice cream shop. I mean, there's kind of an outlet for every creative moment in my in my brain, but maybe fifty to sixty percent of of the menu is like it doesn't really change. They're staples that stay on the menu. And then the other percentage is seasonal. And, you know, creatively, that keeps me on my toes. I'm kind of constantly changing the menu. I don't like to do giant menu changes where you're changing like eight items in one day. I feel like it's really difficult for the staff to get the kitchen staff to get a grasp on how to execute eight new brand new dishes in one day. So I'm kind of, you know, weekly changing one or two items and rolling over seasons. By the time I get all of the fall menu items rolling, it's it's time to change the menu again. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it's kind of a perpetual creative mode, which I appreciate. You know, it's not like my brain stops in between seasons. Sometimes I'll just get sick of a dish and I'll I'll change it just because. <laughs> how how do you test your ideas? I don't know. I feel like I've been cooking for long enough to understand what what's going to work and what's not going to work. That mm-hmm. not That's not to say that, that that's always the case. <laughs> and sometimes I'll put a dish on the menu and I'm never quite satisfied with it. And it'll, you know, only last for a week or two. I have a garden at my house that I'm kind of constantly replanting stuff in. And so I'm very hyper aware of what's in season and what's in not just by literally walking out into my front yard. You know, I visit the farmer's market and I honestly can look and and I will say that I probably am most inspired by produce. So that's kind of what leads my head in certain directions. You know, I'll look at an artichoke and say like, what do I feel like doing with artichokes and kind of look around and see what else is looking good. And I don't know, it just happens very naturally for me. And, you know, sort of to my detriment, I try not to create the same menu item twice. Sometimes there are there are seasonal things that, that come back because people love them. But I will say that most of the time I'm kind of... It's not inspiring for me to put a menu item on the menu that was on the menu a year ago. You know, mm-hmm. I've grown. My customers have seen stuff already. I kind of always feel like I need to be reinventing who I am and how I think of food. Otherwise, it feels stagnant. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the garden. How long have you, you know, had had the garden and been a gardener? Five or six years. Uh, When I remodeled, we remodeled our house maybe six years ago. And I put a raised bed in the front yard. You know, sometimes it nags me and I don't (laughs) necessarily feel like going out and like trimming the passion fruit vines every week. They grow like weeds. And sometimes it feels like just an extra chore. But I also feel like it really keeps me 
grounded in perpetual creativity and thought of of what's going on seasonally and it keeps me on my toes and i i really enjoy watching things grow and and seeing how i can make produce perform better i've brought some cuttings back from hawaii 4 years ago of a dragon fruit plant mm. and this year for the first time it fruited and I had like beautiful, delicious dragon fruit. Wow. Yes, I said delicious. That was there's dragon fruit with flavor, which I never thought was possible. I have fruit growing. I'm like looking at my dragon fruit plant right now. And there's like <laughs> six dragon fruit that need to be picked. The moment I saw the flowers um, flowering, it was like I had just given birth. <laughs> it was like, it's your it was dragon fruit like, baby. <laughs> my dragon fruit babies have arrived and I've been waiting four years for this. And it was really so gratifying. <laughs> um, not that I even really want to eat them. I'm just, just, I'm just excited that they, yeah, yeah, I feel very accomplished. There are certain <laughs> things that, that make me feel very accomplished. And that was one of them. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're lucky. You live in California, Southern California, where you can, you know, you can have a garden all year round, you know, growing up in LA, how did the California ingredients and and just that influence kind of play a role in in your perspective, you know, with your food and your cooking and your restaurants? I mean, I think where you grow up has a a great deal to do with how you develop as, as a person. And I think that that that's very true when you're a chef. You know, I think that every chef out there takes inspiration from their childhood and for me, my childhood was like, I, I had a fruit and vegetable garden growing up. It was part of my daily life to go out and like pick stuff off of trees in my front or backyard. Going to the farmer's market was never something that like suddenly happened in my career. It was something that I grew up with. So I think that it plays a huge part in how I think of food. You know, I think that the fact that I'm inspired by produce is a testament to how I grew up and where I grew up. Absolutely. You mentioned, you know, that you and your husband, when you first met, were, were kind of a little competitive. Uh, what's it like now? And what's the key uh, to successfully working together with a partner? It's really the only way we've ever known each other. So we were first successful colleagues. And then the romantic side came later. You know, I would I would be a liar if I said it's always been easy to work with my husband. We actually work very well together. But in that same breath, we take our work home with us. You know, we talk about work 24 hours a day. If things are crappy at work, then they're crappy at home. It's a double-edged sword. But at the same time, I don't have to explain to anyone what my day was like, because he inherently understands what the day was and why I'm in the mood that I'm in or why I'm excited about something that happened. It's, It's kind of, it eliminates the needing to like, explain your day and not knowing if your spouse will understand it. You know, we both understand when the other one says like, I need to spend all night at work or I need to go in early. And, you know, I'm personally very appreciative that I have someone who, you know, can get a phone call at five o'clock in the morning when somebody's forgotten their key to open up, who will jump in the car and run down to work for me. We're a great team. We pick up each other's pieces when we're not feeling it. And we can celebrate each other's successes because we understand them. 
unlike anyone else. But in the same breath, when we have a fight about our in our personal lives, we bring it to work with us, you know, <laughs> and everyone at work can feel it. <laughs> we, we try not to let that happen very often. It was a little bit easier when we had multiple restaurants because we could kind of just spend the day at a different restaurant. I also will say that we probably see each other less now than we ever really have in our careers because I travel a lot. In the last year, you know, I've probably been gone for a third of it. Mm-hmm. And as lovely as it is to have a business partner that I know can carry the weight at work, it's also wonderful to know that my husband is a father who is as involved and dedicated to being a parent as I am, because that's something that that I really need in support of my career. So yeah, I mean, we we do take long periods of time away from each other. And that's something that that really didn't happen until I did TV. Up next, Brooke talks about her experiences on both seasons of Tournament of Champions, and she reveals who she was most nervous to face off against. I mean, obviously, Food Network fans got to see your your competitive side on both seasons of Tournament of Champions. What are you Se- talking about? I'm not competitive <laughs> at all. Just not not even a little bit. Season one, uh, of course, you started off as the seven seed, competed your way to victory when you bested Michael Vitaggio, Jet Tila, and a, finally Amanda Freitag for the win. You returned for season two. You made it all the way to the finale again, but defeated by Manit Chohan. Wah, wah. I mean, it was such a great battle. <laughs> to watch so I mean after winning season one what made you want to return and do it all over again nothing (laughs) (laughs) Um, you're you're assuming I wanted to return and defend you kind of just had to right there was a conversation that the guy had two camera during the finale of season one that was like all four of you will be back next year and I was like really (laughs) (laughs) I have this strange aching need to put myself in uncomfortable situations where I have no control. I think it's partially because I'm such a control freak (laughs) in my life that I like. And and I also am someone who likes to challenge themselves constantly. So being put in situations that are beyond my control, that's like, it's like a step in educating myself how to handle those scenarios. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something I'm really good at as much as I am a control freak. And as much as like, I feel like competing takes years off of my life every time (laughs) I do it. I also, there's like a thrill to it of knowing that you've put yourself in the most uncomfortable scenario and you've, you come out on top. I strangely, I guess have discovered that I'm good in these really high stress environments. And how do you even discover that, right? <laughs> First of all, you have to put yourself in, the, in that position to, to even understand that and discover that. Um, but then once you discover it, it's like, what's next? You know, like, what can I do with this? And the only thing really you can do with it is continue to do it. Yeah. Well, so with that in mind, are, are we going to see you back for, for season three? I suppose. I suppose. <laughs> Twist your arm. Well, who are you most nervous to, to face off against in those, in those two seasons? Well, it's funny when you were talking about who I battled in season one, the one person you left out of that sort of list of people was Antonia LaFaso. Oh, yes. How could I forget? Antonia is one of my closest friends. She's also someone who I, I think because we're such good friends, she, I I understand her completely. Like we understand each other. We're actually very, very similar people. 
And I know how competitive she is and I know how talented she is. And, you know, I think that she has kind of been the one constant of a person that terrifies me in, in battle. And, you know, I happened to come out on top in season one battling her. And then I was fortunate enough to not have to battle her in season <laughs> two, <laughs> which she wasn't real happy about. Is there a way to prepare it all? Or you just go in and, and see what happens? Yeah, no, I, I think that going in to that scenario, feeling inspired by food in general is the only way for me personally to prepare, you know, like you can either handle those scenarios or you can't. And then it comes to like fine tuning your capability of winning those scenarios. And, you know, the randomizer is, is a whole thing. And I actually feel like it really evens the playing field, not knowing what you're walking into. And I think that having cooked professionally for 25 years is the thing that prepares me most for that because I feel like I can walk into any scenario and, and kind of feel like I know what I'm doing. If you go into those battles and you aren't feeling inspired by food, like if you can't look at an ingredient and immediately think of something to do with it, then you're in trouble. Mm. And I think that the best way to do that is, you know, refresh yourself on some, some old menus, you know, look at pictures of food, kind of just be really hyper aware of, of how to treat ingredients. I'll spend a couple of days beforehand making sure that that I'm just refreshed on what's in season and and styles of cooking. And if I'm given Mediterranean food, what direction am I going to go? Because mm -hmm. I kind of know that it's a handful of things that, that I could be given. Does a, a particular ingredient from the randomizer stand out as like being like especially challenging from either season? ingredient. I mean, there were some insane tools. Okay. Um, well, like yeah, tool able, either. <laughs> like an able skeever. Like what? What? <laughs> um, but ingredient wise, I feel like bitter melon was really difficult. Mm. I don't know. Like I could look at any ingredient and say like that was difficult because of this, this and this. But bitter melon is, is something that definitely stands out because it's not something that anybody really wants to taste. Mm -hmm. So it was a matter of like masking an ingredient, but also highlighting it. On the floor in the competition, do you have like an oh no moment? And, and, and if so, like, how do you push past that? All the time. I mean, I feel like I live in the oh no moment. <laughs> there were definitely moments where I thought to myself, I'm not going to finish. And I will say that in the finale of, of last season, when I looked at my broken hollandaise sauce, and I knew that the ingredient that I had to put on the plate was in that hollandaise sauce. And mm. I had to, I had to use it. And I had literally seconds before I had to put it on the plate, there was no time to fix it. Like I, I know how to fix a hollandaise that's broken. I didn't have time to fix it. Mm -hmm. So I literally just had to put it on the plate and I looked at it and I was like, oh, this is the death of me. <laughs> <laughs> you knew right then. I knew right then. I knew the moment I put that sauce on the plate that the competition was over. It's a really heartbreaking feeling, you know, because you've gotten to this point where you hold yourself to such a high standard. And when you can't follow through, it's like you've failed. I played at that plate, I walked off the stage and I wanted to cry. And it's so funny because, you know, the competition's so lighthearted and, you know, we're all friends and it's not life or death. And I knew like I had made it to the finale. This is as far as you can go. But I take what I do so seriously. And it's not even about being competitive. It's about performing at the top of my capabilities. And I want to be able to do that all the time. And when I can't and I don't follow through, it's really frustrating for me. But I think that that's what makes me a good 
competitor is that I care so much. That you care so much. And that's what keeps you coming back for more, right? <laughs> oh, I know, right? What's wrong with me? <laughs> Do you think that that's the hardest? I mean, you've obviously done a lot of competition shows. Is that the hardest format that you've been faced with? Yes. Fast paced, timed, competitive cooking. There really is no more difficult scenario than being given ingredients and tools and a style or any parameters and then having someone say you have 35 minutes go. <laughs> and it's really like, you know, once you're given those ingredients, it's really moments before you start cooking. So there's, you know, and I, I try to kill time. Like guy will look over and be like, does anybody have any questions? I'll be like, yes, <laughs> I have so many questions. And then I'll just be like talking, I'll be in my head thinking like, what can I do? What can I do? Just asking the most random questions that I really don't need an answer to just to buy myself some just time. Just stall a little bit. <laughs> do you have any pregame rituals? I have a good luck charm that I, that I carry with me that I've carried with me since my son gave it to me when he was four and a half years old for a competition. And that is always in my pocket when I compete. What is it? It's a little plastic lizard. Oh. <laughs> Rubber lizard. <laughs> um, so it fits very nicely in my pocket. Well, I, I saw you got to be on the on the other side uh, of the competition recently, filming Chopped for the first time I saw on your Instagram. Uh, what was that experience like? That was fun. You know, Chopped is a show that's been on for so long that mm -hmm. it, and it felt very surreal like I walked onto the set and I was like oh this kitchen's so small and it's you know like everybody's right here I was very hyper aware of how nervous the competitors were because I've been there mm -hmm. so many times so I think I approach judging maybe a little bit differently than people who haven't done a lot of competitive cooking do but yeah, it was a very surreal experience just being on the on the set of Chopped, you know, sitting next to like Mark Murphy and Manit Chalhan and, you know, people who know the know the production so well that I just kind of wanted to make sure I, I carried myself well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what would be your your Chopped basket kryptonite? I don't know. I've seen some crazy stuff. I, I think that the most difficult ingredients are the ingredients that are an entire like prepared meal, mm -hmm. you know, like a cake that's frosted and like has stuff on it or like a sandwich, you mm -hmm. know, like, like nachos. Having, yeah. Like stuff that where you have to like pick stuff out of something to use and deciding which component of that dish to use, I think I, I feel like would be overwhelming to me. Yeah. I saw you're obviously recently a judge on barbecue brawl of as well with uh, Bobby Flay, Michael Simon, Eddie Jackson. I can only imagine uh, what, what the behind the scenes of, of that set is like. Wh who acts up the most uh, on that one? That show was so much fun. And we spent five weeks in Austin, Texas. You know, I had so much fun getting to know everyone involved in that in that crew. And I can legitimately say that those guys are some of my closest friends now. And it's it's nice to be on a set where you develop friendships like that and they, they carry over into real life. Yeah. What would be your personal like California spin on barbecue? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that we're very vegetable forward here in California. I mean, of course, you know, you look at California barbecue, you think tri-tip and mm -hmm. like Santa Rosa grills. 
I have a big green egg in, in my backyard. I smoke stuff all the time and not just in the summer. I actually, for Thanksgiving, I do turkey legs, mm. um, giant turkey legs, like from, you know, medieval times. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's my favorite thing to barbecue. So I think that, you know, I don't, when I think barbecue, I don't necessarily think red meat, which I feel like most of the country does. Well, you will soon be appearing on the new season of Best Thing I Ever Ate, which is such a great show because I just think it's so fun to, to hear chefs' personal favorite food experiences um, at other restaurants. What makes a, a memorable meal to you? A memorable meal, it's experiential, right? I think that there's something to be said for a delicious you know, great tasting, well-prepared meal. At the same time, there's something to be said for sharing that meal with great people, being in an environment where you want to stay and hang out and create memories. To me, there's a lot involved in a great meal. It kind of goes beyond even just what the food is. Do you have a, a favorite food city? I've been so fortunate in the last eight, 10 years to be able to do a lot of traveling within the United States. I've really discovered so many little pockets of incredible food in places that I didn't anticipate it. I do an event for the Kentucky Derby called Taste of the Derby, and it takes me to Louisville once a year. Mm -hmm. And I've discovered some really incredible food in Louisville. I will say that Austin had some really great food. I went to a, a restaurant in Houston recently called Crawfish and Noodles with Chris Shepard. Took me and Gail Simmons there. It was one of the most incredible food experiences I've had in a very long time. Like just brought us tons of like Vietnamese, Cajun Vietnamese food. Wow. It was it was incredible. I love a city where it feels appropriate to combine different cultures that you don't anticipate mm -hmm. um, because of the demographics of that city and, and how they mesh and meld with each other. You know, it feels very organic, but at the same time, like Cajun Vietnamese, what? You know, yeah. it, it totally works. I love hearing that. I wish we could keep talking for hours, but we are running short on time. So I'm going to finish this off with a little rapid fire round. And then oh, we have, no. yes. And then we <laughs> have uh, one final question for you. All right. So favorite tattoo. I will say it's my son's handprints from when he was six months old. Oh, I love that. Favorite part of living in California? I can run outside any time of the year. Hidden talent. I am really good at memorizing lyrics to songs, <laughs> including like mid-90s rap songs. Especially mid-90s. Um, especially mid-90s <laughs> rap songs. So you can put on a... Pretty almost any mid '90s rap song, and I will know at least three quarters of the words. That's that is an amazing talent. What, what, <laughs> what about a talent that you wish you had? I wish I could play an instrument. Any any particular one, just or just any <laughs> piano. I feel like piano is something that could be like cathartic mm -hmm. for me, um, but it's really not because I can't play it. <laughs> <laughs> <I> can't play it. <laughs> It'll just be more stressful. Go to snack. Popcorn. Favorite dish to cook with your family. Not really a dish, but something that I cook often with my son is boba. Oh. He's obsessed with boba and we we make like fresh boba and a milkshake probably once or twice a week. Wow. Latest food obsession. 
I have this clementine tangerine tree in my front yard Mm. um, that has in the last couple of years matured to the point where it's literally the most delicious tangerine that you could ever imagine. It's like really low acid, super sweet, no seeds. And every time I walk out of my house, I grab one off the tree. (laughs) That sounds like the perfect snack. Most used kitchen tool. Microplane, maybe. Okay. All right. Well, that concludes the rapid fire round. We have one final question, though, that we do ask everybody here on the podcast, and that is what would be on the menu for your perfect food day? So we want to hear what you're having for breakfast, lunch, dinner and dessert. There are no rules. So you can travel, you can time travel, spend as much money as you want. It is your day. I would start my morning with a cappuccino and some delicious pastries. Um, mm. I do love just a good plain butter croissant and a glazed donut, like a simple like Krispy Kreme glazed donut. Okay. Lunch, a corned beef Reuben Ooh. with like Thousand Island and coleslaw and melty Swiss cheese on marble rye bread. Can I have a happy hour with yes. like a glass of champagne 100 percent, or a margarita maybe and uh, for a perfect martini and um <laughs> or all three whatever and classic <laughs> classic caviar service okay i'm inviting myself to happy hour <laughs> <laughs> and then i'd like uh, a bowl of ramen mm. ramen is kind of my go-to craveable food that and sushi is kind of a toss-up and then for dessert i want just like a really simple flan like mm. A perfectly cooked flan. Okay. Light, like not too dense. During the pandemic, I got really into perfecting my flan game. Okay. So I feel like I feel like I I would like my own flan. Yeah, I was gonna say, are you <laughs> cooking the flan for? Yeah, for your- I'll, I'll cook the flan. Okay. And I'll eat the whole thing. Yeah, and maybe like <laughs> maybe also like a a slice of like old fashioned, lots of layers, rich chocolate cake. Okay, which is like a little one or a big one. I mean, whatever. <laughs> Like I said, calories don't count on this on this question. So thank you so much for taking the time. Loved hearing um, about your journey and what we see on TV right now and how it all got started. So thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Talk about the embodiment of a girl boss. Brooke has got it all. You can catch Brooke on the new season of Best Thing I Ever Ate, premiering on Sunday, November 21st at 10, 9 central on Food Network. Thanks so much for listening and make sure you follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And of course, if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday. 